Welcome back in listeners to another fun-filled episode of Whisper in the Wings. We have two incredible guests joining us today. Uh, Erez Ziv, who is the Managing Artistic Director of Fridge in New York, and Kevin R. Free, who is the Resident Artistic Director of Fridge in New York. Gentlemen, welcome to Whisper in the Wings. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Thank you for having us. So this is kind of going along with a recent interview we did with uh, Martha Lorena Preve, who is the producer of Days of the Dead Festival, which is part of Fridge in New York. And what's exciting about having you guys on here is we're talking about the 25th season of Fridge in New York. Uh, and this is really, really exciting um, for anyone who doesn't know about Fridge in uh, New York or a Fridge, you know, a Fringe Festival. This is a big deal. This is an exciting event. Um, so, Erez, why don't you tell us a little bit first about what Frigid New York is? Uh, Frigid New York is a theater organization that's been operating in the Lower East Side in Manhattan for, this is our 25th season now, so it's been some time. Uh, we create a platform for uh, early and emerging artists to kind of find themselves, find their art, figure out how to do what they need to do to move on in, in we've sent people out into the TV world, into films, into theater. We kind of get people ready for careers in, in theater. And some people just stay with us for many, many years uh, and don't move up to like, there's a lot of people we work with that have no interest in, in becoming Broadway uh, artists and, and film artists. They like to do small intimate theater for 30 40 people uh and and we've had people that have been doing that with us for one of the shows that's coming up now uh radio theater has been happy doing shows in small venues for 20 years now and they're not looking to move up into larger theater it's a, it's an intimate experience they like it to stay an intimate experience uh and that's that's what we provide we provide intimate theater experiences for artists and for audiences. And sometimes that is the best space for some, some shows, you know? Um, and it's interesting because my wife and I have had conversations about why some shows don't work sometimes as we're putting together our main episodes. And literally sometimes it comes up of, it was just too big of a theater. The show just didn't work because the theater was too big. And, you know, there's no shame in that. Sometimes you need more of that intimacy, you know? Now, Kevin, you are the uh, um, the resident artistic director at Frigid. So you work more with the resident artists, is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, so I, I want to sort of roll back on what Erez was saying and what you were saying. And the, I think the thing about, about Frigid New York that one of the reasons I'm here is because the Crane Theater, which is one of the spaces um, for of Frigid New York, is the space where I have made most art in my entire career. So I've been in New York for 27 years and have made a living as an actor and a director and I uh, and an audiobook narrator, which is why I have this little fancy mic here. Uh, <laughs> and, and But I've gone all over the country, all over the world, be, as an actor and a director. Um, but I have made more art in the Crane Theater, which is part of Frigid New York, as an independent theater artist than I have anywhere else in the world. And one of the great things about Frigid New York is that it allows artists to be themselves 
and to figure out what they're doing as an independent theater artist as our careers grow and change. And so my career has grown in a way that I, I can't afford to do independent theater anymore, but I can spend a few hours a week mentoring independent theater artists, which is basically what my job is as a res as the resident artistic director at uh, Fridge New York, basically to say, here is what I did, here is what you can do, and it is and it's up to them to figure out how they're going to sustain a career as an as an independent theater artist. And so, I mean, the way I figured that out was I had to, I can't act in independent theater anymore and I can't direct in independent theater anymore, but I can definitely consult with uh, artists who are still coming up and making theater. And and to the po your point about radio theater, Erez, a lot of times we we learn that Oh, we're making art for art's sake. We're not making art to make money. We're making art because it makes the world a better place. Yes. We're making art because we are activists. And those kinds of artists are the artists that Frigid New York cultivates and sends out into the world. I mean, there are lots of artists who have gone on to have careers that, that make them money as artists, but they figured out how they would do that by being mentored by people like Era Ziv and Kelly Nicole Gerard. Um, it's just a really, it's a, it's a, Fridge New York is a, is a, I hate, to, it's fertile ground. I was going to call it a breeding ground, but I probably don't want to do that. It's, it's, it's fertile ground for, uh, artists of all ages. I love that you brought up the art for art's sake. Cause I literally, that's been in like the forefront of my mind this whole time. Um, I mean, I feel like the theater world is so awash with commercial you know, theater, if it's not a commercial success, it's not a success. Theater is still an art form. And having an having a piece of theater that is just successful as art, it's just art for art's sake is not a bad thing. You know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't just have to be successful as a commercial piece of theater. No. That's not the only way you define success at all. And there's nothing wrong with commercial theater. I mean, there's a, clearly a place for commercial theater. That's what a lot of people do. But I think that people can't see independent theater and think and think of it like they're going to see a Broadway show. Yes, exactly. The bells and whistles come more from the imagination with independent theater than they do from these technological wizards that you get in the commercial theater. You get bells and whistles that take us back to what it was like just to play when we were yes. young people and had nothing but like costumes to throw on that we found because we found our grandmother's nice hats or whatever in a closet somewhere. You know, it, it takes us, it, it, because there's less money in the independent theater, you rely more on your imagination to figure out how to make it work in those, in those spaces. The storytelling is more raw, more real. It's just, I actually, I, I love that you brought up the crane because I just saw gruesome playground injuries. At oh, the crane. yeah. I've been dying to see that show. I had a classmate do the, the bed, the hospital bedside monologue. And ever since then, I've been trying to find this play to read it. And this is the first time that I'd seen it all together. And it, and it was, they, it was raw. They were doing costume changes on stage. They, the actors were doing all the set changes in front of us. And I was just in, I, completely enthralled in it. I was living for it. When the show ended, I was like, no, 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 no. There's gotta be more. Keep telling the story. I'm invested more. I wanna know where this goes. Go to your forties, your fifties, your sixties, you know. I don't always get that response outside of this world. So I love how raw the storytelling is. And I love that, you know, for 25 years, you guys have been doing this. 
you know, that, that you've been bringing this to audiences. Um, now, now um, Ares, have you been involved with all 25 years of doing this? I have. I've been here since the very beginning. What <laughs> founder? What was it like developing Fridge in New York? You know, I, I didn't come to this from the theater world. I, I, I never, I was never in a play in high school. Uh, I never did any theater things. I just fell into this. Uh, and it, it, so creating Frigid was just, you know, feeling around in the dark, trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. Uh, I didn't have any, uh, any preconceived notions to to rely on. There was no path that I knew, you know, this is what I have to do and this is what has to happen next. And we just kind of figured it out as we went along. Um, and it was very interesting doing it this way. We didn't, we didn't become a nonprofit until well over 15 years into it. For the first 15 years, we were purely for profit. Not that we made a profit, but we couldn't uh, fundraise. We didn't fundraise at all. And it was a point of pride at that time that we could create art and make it work and, and stay stick around without asking anybody for money, just to buy tickets. Um, and then we started asking people for money and it made it a lot easier <laughs> to do the things that we're doing. Uh, so I, it's kind of a shame we didn't do that earlier, but it was nice to do it <laughs> that way uh, in the beginning because we weren't beholden to any grant-making organizations, any major funders, any government organizations. We just, yeah, our only funders were our audience. Uh, and, and that was very freeing. It was very nice starting out that way. And it kind of set some things in the grain of Frigid uh, that we still have around today. We, still you know don't always make funders happy uh, but we try to make all our audiences happy that's number one now i did mention um in the intro that the upcoming i'll say festival is the day of the dead festival but you guys have other like smaller festivals throughout the year do you want to touch on a few of the other ones that you guys put on sure uh uh the days of the dead festival is is generally our first festival of the year. And this is the first time that we're doing it. We, we used to do uh, a festival, uh, an October festival, uh, and it was horror and sci-fi. And the last one we did was the one in 2001. Uh, oh, wow. September, yes, it was the October after September 11th. And nobody had any interest in, in this kind of material at that time. And we just kind of Put it to bed and we're bringing it back to life now 20 years later uh with martha at the helm and she's wonderful she's all she loves this season too and it you know most of the things that we do rely on finding partners that love doing what we want to do uh it's we do way too much for for me or even our staff to do all of it we rely on on production partners uh so for the for days of the dead it's martha that that curates that one for us gotham is me i i curate that one but that's pretty rare uh and then we do uh funny immigrants by, festival by gotham he means gotham storytelling festival gotham storytelling festival that's November, right yeah. normally thank you yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
in in January we start out with the Funny Immigrants Festival uh, that is generally curated by Lucy Paul, a very funny uh, comedian uh, who's born in Germany. And the idea for this one is all these comics; these are all comics that were not born in the U.S. And then the Fire This Time Festival comes after that, African American Playwrights Festival, oldest one in New York City, uh, and this is going to be our fourteenth season now. Uh, and that's a that's a wonderful festival and, and has produced some great work that has gone on to do wonderful things in, in the world of theater in New York. Are you, and I used to be the producing artistic director of that festival and um, Frigid New York and Fire This Time Festival won an Obie Award in 2015. Oh, wow. For having done this work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we're now talking about maybe touring it to Australia next fall. It should be a lot of fun. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, it is very exciting. That that festival has been very, very exciting and wonderful growth and and really uh, amazing team uh, from the start and all the way. Uh, after that, we have Frigid Festival, which is our biggest festival. Now, one we don't pick the shows. This one, the shows we really <laughs> literally pull them out of a hat. It's a, a fun way to curate a festival. We curate a whole season. So this is the one time a year where we kind of just let God do it. Uh, and, you know, random chance was good enough to create the universe. I think it can handle a little theater festival once a year. Uh, and, and the shows that we have gotten in there have been great. There's uh, every year there's a couple of shows that come in that I would have never picked if I was picking shows. Uh, and they are a wonderful surprise. After that one is Estro Genius in March, and that's a festival that actually starts, the only festival we do that didn't start with us. That started somewhere else 20 years ago, uh, and we're just like, we, we picked it up when they lost their venue, uh, and, and we're continuing that tradition. Then June is Queerly Festival um, for Pride Month. And then sometime in July or August, you know, that festival kind of moves around a little bit is our Shakespeare Festival. Uh, and that one started out as a festival that just did one Shakespeare play in five or six different ways. At least one of them was not in English. Uh, and after the pandemic, we kind of did one year where it was all one person Shakespeare shows. Uh, and then this year it was all four or five cast members or less. Shakespeare shows. And next year, we're going to do a, a Shakespeare from a, a femme point of view. Oh, uh, that, that should be an interesting then that's the, the new curator of the festival, Connor, who did a wonderful job uh, this year. Uh, that was his idea. So that's what we're going to ride with for next year. So you have a full docket. I mean, that's, that is incredible. That's just the festivals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we also have a lot of monthly shows before the pandemic. We had two dozen monthly shows that ran once a month, every month uh, ongoing. Uh, now, you know, we lost a lot of them. A lot of them, a lot of artists that we worked with just left town. Uh, but now we're, we're back down to about a dozen monthly shows and we're hoping by the end of the season to build it back up to where it was before.
you mentioned that the frigid fringe vessel is the only one that you kind of pick out of a hat. The other ones, like, you know, we'll say Days of the Dead, the Gotham storytelling, or um, the Fire This uh, Fire This Time Festival, where you've got these different curators. How do you like develop the? How, what is the process of like picking the stories? So the festivals have curators, and these curators uh, pick the shows, invite people. It's generally an invitation. They're, they're all invitation festivals. We don't usually have uh, an application on our website. Uh, although every couple of years, every festival, we do put out uh, just a general application to kind of refresh the pool of people that we know. Very important uh, for Frigid as a philosophy to keep the pool of artists that we work with large. Uh, we don't want to become one of those organizations that always works with the same people all the time, year after year, for decades. We, we want... We want Mainly what we want is the artists that we work with to move on from us <laughs> to become uh, more successful and, and work in larger venues. Uh, but we also want to keep the work that we're doing fresh and, and bring in new people with new ideas and new stories. So um, back in the day, I was the curator of the Queerly Festival and uh, I used to, well, Aries would say, hey, I heard about this show that's happening over here do you want to go see that and see if they'd be interested in coming here to do the queerly festival so i would go and watch a show or watch a series of shows and then decide who i wanted to invite or if i i mean i some a couple of times i you know i got emails from people who wondered where they could go to do a show and i would say oh i know where you can go here's the queerly festival or i would meet an artist performing in anything, and I would say, do you happen to have a solo show or a show of your own that you could, that you would feel, in, you'd be interested in producing and self-producing it as part of the Queerly Festival? So, you know, the curation process is different for everybody, but for me, it was really about, it was really community-based. Who do I know who knows someone else who has a show that they've been dying to do and how do we get them to do it at the queerly festival and from there it's um mentoring them as they produce their own work and figure out how to raise the money for that and all of that kind of stuff and then um and so like Ari said the pool gets bigger and bigger i think i want to i just sort of want to say that yes the pool we, we keep the pool big but if there are people who want to stay around and change their role with Frigid New York, which is what I have done, that then they then the people are welcome to do that. So um, I'm, I want to ask you first, Kevin, is there a message that you're hoping audiences will walk away from when they see a show from uh, Frigid, from one of the festivals that Frigid does? The message for me would be that I would love for them to, to know that The independent theater community is vibrant, is diverse, is important to the economy of New York City. And I would love for people to. I think I I think a lot of us who are theater artists recognize that we can hold two thoughts in our head. Right. There is Music Man and there's the Days of the Dead Festival. And they're both art. They're both viable. They're both worthy of eyeballs. They're both, 
and I and I think I what I would want is is what you were saying is that when your family comes to visit and you take them to see something weird in a in a small little space, we want them to have that conversation in their brains as well as the conversation about my white knight in in or 76 trombones in, in music band you know i want them to to be able to i want all of these things to be able to hold space in everybody's brains we live in a world where people are where ideas have become so polarized that we even people who are even amongst liberals we are not thinking about a lot of times about how you can hold not everything is black and white you can hold two thoughts in your head yes that person's a terrible person and that terrible person made this great play like we can hold we recognize that like we can do that sort of thing that that was just an example i'm not really talking about any terrible people you know um <laughs> so um i my the message that i hope that people take from it is that we independent theater artists are as important to your community as uh, artists who are supported by lots and lots and lots and lots of money. I love that. Yeah. And Eris, how about you? Um, is there a particular message you're hoping the audiences take away from one of these as well? Yes. What I want people to walk away from our theater thinking is that was fun. I should go see more of those little shows. Uh, you know, so, so many people in New York, they come here for the theater. They want to see theater. They go and spend, you know, $400 on a pair of tickets for Broadway. And that's all the theater they can afford to see for the week or month or depending on, you know, there is theater happening in New York City all the time, every night everywhere and for that same $400 you can go see a great show and make a generous donation and have some drinks and dinner and drinks again after the show it's uh and there's great work and there's really really great work that happens in these small venues and I want people to to know that and to tell their friends and I can vouch for that. And I'm sure our listeners definitely can, can vouch for that as they see, you know, every night we are at a different show at a different theater. And I'm like, literally, I'm, I'm pretty sure every day of the year, we could just see a different show here in the city and still not see everything. Right. You know, we still haven't even really branched out into the outer boroughs of like Brooklyn and Queens and whatnot. You know, it's, it's insane. The, the plethora of theater that we get spoiled with. Right. Um, I want to wrap up this portion of the interview by asking, it is the 25th anniversary of Frigid. Um, you know, any big plans to celebrate? Um, anything special happening? We're, we're bringing back a lot of old artists that we've worked with over the past 25 years. And they're coming in to do like a little one-nighter here or a short run or readings. Uh, and, and, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of these folks that, you know, some of them I haven't worked with in a couple of decades, you know, so like, like uh, radio theater that we haven't worked together in, in over a decade. Um, Mike Daisy is coming back. Clay McLeod Chapman, who, who just had his, his a movie come out uh, major release with uh, Wendell and wild. He, he, he wrote that key and peel movie and he's coming in to do a night uh, Leslie Gashko, who's done work with us years ago and has been doing cabarets all over town, is coming back. 
uh, the anthropologists are coming back. So many, so many artists that that we've worked with are coming back to do little things throughout the season. Uh, some of them we already have scheduled. Some of them we're going to be scheduling as the months go by. And I think by the time we get to to the summer, it's going to be a wild summer of of work. Very excited about that. I am getting excited about all of this. Like I am getting it. I wrote down like all the different festivals. As soon as we're done here, like my day is going to be spent just like looking ahead. I'm like, all right, I got to fit this in. This is happening because this is incredible. This is just so exciting. So now I want to turn the attention a little, um, just a little bit away from Frigid itself and a little bit more on you guys. Um, and I want to start by asking, I'm going to start actually with Kevin. Kevin, I want to ask you, what shows in the past have inspired you or do you love? And I'll also open it up to playwrights or composers as well. First, I love anything that is passionate, anything that pushes not the envelope, but the idea that you can have a full experience on a shoestring budget. Um, and so uh, uh, I spent four years to full time as a New York neo-futurist. And we did we did a, used to do a show called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind. Um, that show is now called The Infinite Wrench. And it is performed at Crane, at the Crane Theater um, in Fiji, New York. And I was a member of the company for a number of years. And watch, and you know, the show that we do there is um, 30 short plays done in random order in 60 minutes. Wow. And a timer is set and the audience screams out the number of the play they'd like to see. And then you jump up and we grab the number, we say the title, we do the show, we do the play. And it's an attempt to do all 30 of those plays in 60 minutes. And um, there are several artists from that company who continue to inspire me um, because they're able to make these very short plays without any artifice, without any, without a lot of bells and whistles. And I have, I get a full experience just from watching a two minute play, you know? Um, so that, and then, um, one of the former producers of the Fire This Time Festival is a playwright named Angelica Sherry, and she is one of the finest, she's like my baby sister, one of the finest artists I've ever met in my life. She has a musical that's supposed to open on Broadway sometime soon called Gun and Powder that she co-wrote with a guy named Ross Baum, and, um... Right now, I actually just directed a production of her play, Berta Berta, which is based on the prison chain gang song that um, that existed in the world, but is also sung in an August Wilson play called The Piano Lesson. Oh. And um, she, to me, epitomizes the idea that one can be an artist and also be someone 
who is paid to be an artist. <laughs> um, so, so I think about her and I also think about her kindness and her gratitude and her um, passion for what she does. And so I, I'm, I'm naming her as an example, but there are all these other artists that I know because of the Fire This Time Festival, Kelly Nicole Gerard and Germano Toussaint and, and um, Stacey Rose. There are these really, really brilliant, beautiful playwrights um, who when they make something, I am dying to see it. And if I can't see it, I email them and say, can I read it? Um, so I would I would like to say that. So to sum up, I will say that the artists who who. Who change my life are those artists who have a passion for making the work that they do and are also really kind, who are also people who care about my humanity. Erez, how about you? What uh, what shows in the past have inspired you or playwrights or composers? So uh, I just want to point out that Berta Berta by Angelica Sherry is running right now in New Jersey. You should check it out. Oh! I love Angelica. She's uh, one of my favorite people. Uh, yeah. I, my, I I like new work. I generally don't like to see shows that have been done a million times. Um, so I, you know, most of the work that that has really touched me over the years is like fly by night work that you know hasn't been done again. I think one of my favorite artists, uh, Clay McLeod Chapman, has been. He was our original resident artist. Uh, you know, I, I saw him in actually a Fringe Festival up in our theater. Uh, my wife actually saw him and was like, "You got to go see this." And I went, and I was like, "How do we work with artists like this?" So we created the resident program so that we can bring artists like this into our fold and and work with them. And and these artists have created tremendous crazy new work over the years uh, that has been just a, a, a pleasure to watch. Um, uh, Theater and Asylum uh, was, was one of those organizations and, and they're still working today, doing wonderful work uh, all around town. Um, I think in terms of just watching a show, I love variety shows. I really enjoy walking in and seeing like a full spectrum of of entertainment in one night uh, we have an open mic that happens every tuesday night and there you can sometimes see musicians and dancers and poets and somebody doing a monologue and comics it's it's just a, a, a smorgasbord of of entertainment uh, those those are the shows i i really enjoy seeing uh broadway i haven't seen anything there in like close to 15 years. I generally don't go see like theater, theater like that. Uh, I do like to see the new work that, that, that happens in our venues and venues like ours in, in Brooklyn and all over town. And sticking with you, Erez, uh, with this next question, what's your favorite part about working in the theater? I, I like working with creative people who think of things creatively who try to do things that haven't been done before who tried to do you know just to invent whole worlds on stage uh all the time 
That's my favorite thing. There's nothing, nothing, there's nothing that we do that, that is done the same every time out of the gate. It just doesn't work that way. Everything is different. Every show is different. Uh, every day is interesting. Uh, and especially now, like we've gotten to reinvent everything in the last couple of years. Now we're, we're streaming all our shows. So it's like, uh, there, there's the, the, the stage aspect, there's the audience, there's the people online who are watching the stage and hearing the audience. There's a, there's a lot of very creative ways, uh, creative things that we can do. And our, our level of theater, our placement in the, you know, the world of theater allows us to really go nuts. Uh, there aren't large investors that are expecting us to make the safe bets every time. We can just do crazy things and sometimes they work out really well and if they don't nobody dies it's okay <laughs> kevin how about you what's your favorite part the community the community hands down um you know i moved to new york to be a big musical comedy star i was going to do broadway and then i was going to go move <laughs> on to sitcoms that was like my whole thing when i moved to new york 27 years ago and um Every time it was time for me to make a choice between going to that bar and hanging out with that famous person or famous director who might be able to get me a job in, you know, every time I was, you know, supposed to put my face in the right place um, or every job that came up that would have paid less but would have been put me in the right spot for something else or a workshop or whatever, I chose to do something else. And so what I realized was that I was never actually looking for fame. I was looking for money. And then the other thing I was looking for, <laughs> the other thing I was looking for because of the choices I made was community. Like I wanted to be a part of a community that supported me and whom I could support. And so uh, I, it's funny. I tend to think that I am bad at staying in touch with people with whom I've worked you know, you do when you're a theater artist, you work with so many different people and then you leave town and then you're done. Right. And then that then the show is over. Right. Um, and I used to feel really bad about how I didn't really keep in contact with people from all these past shows that I've done. And um, somebody said, that's you're lying. <laughs> you're wrong. You you're you're in touch with everybody. Are you kidding? Like people know what you're doing and you know what a lot of people are doing. And you know, there, there are there, but there are a lot of people that I don't know whether. Anyway, I think that speaks to my need to be a part of a community and to reach out to people of the community. So my hands down, my favorite thing about making theater is the is the chosen families that we make from making theater. Kevin, as we wrap up this interview, I want to ask my favorite question, starting with you, which is, what is your favorite theater memory? My favorite theater memory. Um, so I, along with being the resident artistic director of Virginia, New York, I am the artistic director of a small professional theater in Hoboken, New Jersey, called Miles Square Theater. And before I was the, the artistic director there, I 
was a freelance director, and I directed a play, a production of Dominique Mariso's Pipeline, um, at that theater in 2019. And the play itself has an has activism, and some of the activism is about it's about the prison to the school to prison pipeline for young black kids, men specifically. And there in it, there are there are uh, projections of school fights um, in in the play. But the play itself is about a mother and her son and how her son has gotten into a fight and is and they're trying to railroad him, basically. And it's about their family. And I said to the scenic designer of that play, um, this play, the character, the, the main character has a panic attack in the middle of the play. And I said, this entire play should be a panic attack. Um, and it should be taking her to this panic attack. And the scenic designer designed this incredible set that that was on tracks the flats were on tracks above us and every I'm getting a chill when I think about it every scene an actor behind those flats would move to to set another room to and and the tracks would move and the walls would move so that we were in the right place and there were three chairs so it was basically tracks and three chairs sometimes there was a table with a lamp on it and so as so a scene would end and it would get like wiped by a moving wall, and the next thing we know, we're at it. We're in another scene, and we never saw the actors moving these walls, and that was really cool. So, when we got to tech rehearsal at the end of the play, those actors were then supposed to move all of the screens so that um, so that we could reveal the projection screen and see another projection about a school fight that turned into slow motion, and then it and then. We got then we did the final scene of the play, and in tech in that theater, it's a very small theater, so there are no headsets. So as the tech crew, the lights and the sound and and the scenic design were all trying to figure out how to make this moment happen in a way that felt seamless, I could hear them all talking about it, and so I got to be a part of the collaboration. Normally, the director tells you things, and we were collaborating that way, but the director doesn't get to hear all of the conversation. So that was one of the most, ex it was really exciting to hear the conversation and then to be able to contribute to the conversation that wasn't going to stop them from doing the work. So what we figured out was that in that moment, when, we were all, when they were all talking about it, I said, wait, I think I can help. And I made it so that when the actors were moving the screens in this one final time, that we were seeing the actors move the screens, and then they stood on stage and watched the activism of the play, which is this projection about school fights. And so they moved the screens, and they watched the action, and then uh, turned to the audience, saw the audience looking at them, looking at the, at the slide, and then they walked off stage, and then they did, then the final scene happened. And for me, that was one of that is one of my favorite memories because I got to be a part of a conversation that I would not necessarily have been a part of from the beginning if we were in a larger space. If we were in a space where everybody had a headset and they're all talking to each other about how to make something happen, they might not even they might have come to me and asked me what was going on, but they asked me how to how to help them, asked if I could help them. But in this case, I got to hear the conversation and be a part of it and then change it. And it made the play so much better. It made the not the play, the production so much better. Um, 
And it meant so much more to all of us once we did it. And I have to say that that is one of my favorite. That is my favorite. One of my favorite theater memories. I have so many, but that's one of my favorite. And and it really solidified my idea that collaboration is the only way that we can make theater happen. Aris, how about you? Oh my, it's been 25 years of memories. Uh, you know, I don't know that I can narrow it down to, you know what, I can't. My favorite theater memory, we were in tech for a show called Hostage Song. Uh, and the director of that show was eventually the director of what the constitution means to me. The one the guy who wrote the book, wrote the book for um, Oliver, Oliver Butler. And then uh, Kyle uh, wrote the book and he wrote the music and he did uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, the musical. And Clay wrote the play and he just did Wendell and Wild. So it was like a, an all-star team just before, as they were like starting to be recognized as stars. It was a tremendous play. It was a great, uh, it, it was really a lot of fun, but we had so many troubles so many problems in tech getting this that day we were very frustrated trying to get the exact sound that we wanted out of the guitar it was hours of balancing speakers and microphones and it was just a, a, it was a long day <laughs> and my father was in town he took me to see uh lion king which was the last show i ever saw on broadway actually um and that was in the original venue still and there's a scene where everybody's running around with these like birds on a wire on, on a, a blue surface and one of the birds fell off its wire and and onto the surface there and I, I saw the guy see it and think about going back for it but then they didn't they kept running off everybody ran off and then this big blue fabric with the lake was supposed to be sucked into the stage but there's this bird on top of it so they started sucking it in and the bird is getting closer and closer and closer to the hole. And then it just stands there like that, like, and the whole lake got stuck on this bird on a stick and, and they're pulling and they're pulling and they're pulling. And eventually it did get pulled through and it made me feel so good to see like this, you know, big tech issue happen on a big Broadway show after we had so many problems were on that day and it was like okay we're all we're all dealing with it it's all good and the next scene nobody remembered the bird everything is fine the next day in fact everybody was fine and everything is it was great and it was a wonderful show and it was a good it was very relaxing to see that <laughs> so i know you guys are gonna run i just want to ask for our listeners if they want more information about fridge in new york or they want to get a hold of you how can they do that uh frigid.nyc it's our website and lists everything we do all our shows uh all our artists well my guests today have been Erez ziv and kevin r free uh of fridge in new york um, they are celebrating their 25th season here in New York, and it kicks off here shortly. Or, or their next festival, I should say, is the Days of the Dead Festival, October 20th to November 1st. You can catch their works at the Crane Theater or under St. Mark's. And more information about Frigid New York is available at frigid.nyc. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. 
It means the world to me. Thank you so much. And congratulations on 25 years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's Andrew. been a great Appreciate run. Thank you so much. Thank you. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In Stage Whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you'll find all the information about our backstage pass. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.